You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. There, years ago, I did a bit of work out of high level. And I was like out on a, uh, on a pipeline project. And there was a, I, I really don't remember too much. I don't remember the name, but there was a, a resource road gravel road that we were using to travel out, stayed in a camp, can't remember which one or where it was, but all I remember was on the side of the road, there was this big spruce tree and somebody had carved all of these wooden arms, like kind of like from the shoulder down, like, like out of limbs or branches and they were carved, probably chainsaw carvings. And then they attached them to this tree and there must've been like eight pairs of arms on this tree. It looked just (laughs) kind of funny. I got a picture of it somewhere. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. I haven't. It'd be out in the bush somewhere, probably northwest of high level. But yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that. I haven't even heard of that, actually. I'm going to ask. Next time I'm going up this weekend, I'll ask. (laughs) Start asking around. I will. where's Where's the tree with all the arms? I mean, this is like going back you know, maybe eight, eight years ago. So mm-hmm. who knows? It's possible it's still there. Maybe. But yeah, I'll ask around. Away. <laughs> I thought, like one, it's like, well, what's the significance of it? And why all the arms? And was it a some sort of statement, artist statement or a board crew that was out in the woods? Or I'm not sure, but when I find out, I'll let you know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely let me know the significance of the... I called it the handy tree. Trees are handy. Yeah, makes sense. (laughs) Had all these these arms. When when was it a couple of years ago, those um, big stainless steel monoliths that were just popping up all Mm -hmm. over the world? Yeah. Just art art installations or whatever. I'm hoping it was something like really like profound like that, right? (laughs) Like this famous Banksy artist and his trees with arms and... Out in the bush in high level. Yeah. That's, huh. All right. Well, that that just you haven't heard of that, so like that I just haven't. totally like like takes the wind out of my sails for this whole entire podcast because I thought this was going to be like the, the biggest the biggest thing because I I didn't know, but huh. Well, from not being from there. Uh, that area, whenever I was going out to the job site, I always knew I was going the right direction because when you saw the tree, you're like, okay, I'm on the right road. So, yeah. Uh, so you do a bit of hunting and fishing and stuff up there? Uh, it's more down south, to be honest. So I, okay. I work in high level or I work for the town. But I actually live in Cochrane, which is just west of Calgary mm. um, now. So it's a bit of a commute. I used to uh, travel up there a lot more uh, regular. So I'd, I'd spend three weeks up there and that was after living there for a couple of years. Um, and then I'd work from home for three weeks. But now I go up a bit, uh, a bit less than that. But uh, yes, my, uh, my boyfriend's uh, quite the hunter and I met him in Thailand. And so he's telling me that he goes out in the bush and harvests his own food. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> like, I didn't even know really this was a thing, but it's a huge culture that I had no clue about. And um, 
I remember when I first moved to Calgary, going into the garage, like I wouldn't look up because there's like carcasses hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> and now I'm like elbows deep, pulling guts out, you know, and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So I've never shot anything, only birds. Um, but I certainly, uh, you know, help pack the meat out and, and stuff like that. So it's been interesting. <laughs> Well, it's you've you've got you've got birds. Yes. Gross. Gross mostly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just did oh, some that's awesome. um uh bird hunting uh last year, which it's quite addictive. Uh, I didn't really oh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't really understand the um you know, I guess the drive to go and do it all the time. And uh, once I started doing it, I really started to enjoy it. And every time I saw one, I was like, get the gun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> are, are you, uh, are, do you have a dog? Like, like sort yeah. of, so, so is the dog helping to hunt the grouse, she, like flushes them and points and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, or? you know, she's a rescue dog. So she's a, uh, a Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, cross and uh, she's crazy and uh, her favorite thing is to go out into the bush and she loves to uh, you know chase squirrels and flush birds and when you get the gun she knows and like she will go behind you until you shoot the bird and then she'll go and find it for you like she's uh, she's pretty clever she is perfect yeah so we do a lot of that I always found the toughest thing with grouse, which, cause I don't have a dog for like grouse hunting would be, is that it knows the grouse is there yes. and can let you know. Cause you yes. know what it's like if you, if you try to hunt grouse, like in the forest, as opposed to just like, oh, there's one on the side of the road and, mm-hmm. and you get out, like actually hunt them in their, in their, their element. It's like, it's hard. Cause it's like, you can literally step on them and they're like, yeah. You always hear the noise first. So yeah, like I keep her like attached to me by a waist uh, leash. And when she starts pulling, I'm like, oh, you know, there's something must be here. And then I kind of look and I can't see it, right? Because it's standing still. And then eventually it moves and then you you can spot it then. But she's really quick at uh, at zeroing in on them. So (laughs) that would would be amazing to have that because yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to find them otherwise, but then, then you also got to be good at wing shooting too. Cause those, well, rough grouse when they take yeah. off, they're like, yeah, b- before you, at least my brain can even process it. It's like, it's too far to shoot. So. Yeah. I, I definitely am uh, more comfortable with like shooting them out of the tree or, or on the ground mm. as opposed to when they're, uh, when they're moving. So you know, I'm getting better at it. I guess we'll try again this year and, uh, you know, see how that goes. But I'm certainly going to buy, you know, some other tags. Like I've been there for a couple of black bear harvests, which were uh, particularly the second one was quite uh, <laughs> quite the uh, trip. Um, and then Rocky Mountain Sheep as well, which was just unbelievable, you know, especially the terrain, right? Like you're right on the side of the, on the mountain and it's, you shoot it just before dark and it's, you know, two thirty in the morning before you get back to the camp. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you've, you've immersed right into the, uh, Canadian <laughs> lifestyle. So. I think so. My family and my friends back in England just don't even recognize me anymore. 
<laughs> and I've only been here for six and a half years. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Hunt and fish and heat your home with a wood stove and run mm -hmm. a chainsaw and all this kind of stuff. And they're yeah. like, holy. We do. We've got like an outfitter's tent and we, you know, we go and set it up out, out in the bush. And, you know, sometimes like the bigger trips that we do, we're like 10, 11 nights, but it's normally, you know, maybe three or four. Of course, we got the smaller tents as well for spiking out, but I don't do as much fishing. I, uh, I'm definitely not very good at that, but I, I caught an Arctic grayling once in a river and I was so excited. I went to get my picture with it and it, flipped off my hook and jumped back in the river and swam away. <laughs> so I was pretty oh. upset. <laughs> well, I'll take, I'll take your word for it. They're beautiful fish. Yeah. 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 Super, super gorgeous. They look almost like they're from the tropics. Mm -hmm. Big fan yeah. in the blue. I recognized and... it immediately. Yeah. It was in a river up, uh, up north, like around the Grand Cache area. Okay. Up at the Kakwar, mm. it was in there. Wow. Well, yeah. that's, that's great. Um, so you, you came here from England like six, seven years ago now, mm -hmm. straight, straight to Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I moved to Calgary originally. Uh, and then I kind of spent about eight or nine months, uh, looking for a job and I ended up moving a thousand kilometers North, uh, for an environmental planning job at municipality up in Northwest Alberta. Um, and that's where I got involved with the with the committee and, you know, this project we're going to talk about today. And then I had um, I was there for about, I don't know, 15, 16 months. And then I moved to the urban municipality, which is the town of high level. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, your your action item is to is to ask around about the about the handy tree. Absolutely. <laughs> we, need, we need resolution to who, what, where, when, and why. Oh, I will get that for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, everybody. It's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. Do uh, maybe, maybe some of the listeners have a big commute to work. I bet they do because I know. Sometimes I do. But what's the best way to commute to work? in a big off-road 4 by 4 right? Maybe not. <laughs> but you'll definitely not want to use your dinky little car to go out into the bush. Or maybe you're a crazy bitch who likes to rally a Corolla down the back road to your hunting spot. Either way, go check out the folks at Alpine Toyota, and they will get your vehicle outfitted so it's bush ready, whether you're commuting or going to your hunting spot. Folks down at Alpine Toyota are big supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada, which is pretty sweet. You can feel good supporting them because you know you're supporting ducks and wetland and conservation in Canada, as well as big supporters of us. We're, uh, we're super stoked that they're keeping with us and helping us produce the, uh, the content that we bring you guys every month. Thanks, Alpine. Absolutely. Thank you. I mean, it, we make fun of people now if they if you see a car in the back country like you see you see more of them um you know like the little suvs and stuff and the little racks with the mountain bikes Subarus. and stuff on the back but um when 
when my family, like my dad and my uncles and my grandfather and stuff like hunted back, you know, way before I was born, like nobody had a pickup truck. They all had cars and they would go off hunting. And my dad has a story about them getting a, a moose and they had to take the seats out of the car, stash them in the bush and then put the moose quarters in the car and sit on them and then drive to town and take the, the moose to the cooler and then go back out the next day and get their seats out of the bush and bolt them back into the car. So, Wow. I think that's where the whole thing about uh, animals being on the tied on the hoods of vehicles, which is like it's not like yeah. sort of socially the thing to do anymore. It's like I, I always maintained and it's like, well, that was a practice because – there was nowhere else to put it. <laughs> it was like these people were these people were going out hunting with cars and it's like mm -hmm. if you got a deer, it's like, well, I had to tie it on the fender or on the bumper yeah, or the hood absolutely. or whatever. So it, it wasn't a it wasn't a show off thing back then. It was just a that's how you had to transport it. So but now you can get yourself a pickup truck down at Alpine Toyota. Cool. Um so we're joined by Haley Gavin. Gavin, you are a land use and planning manager at the town of High Level, Alberta, correct? Yes. And you live in west of Cochrane? Uh, west of Calgary, in West Cochrane. of Calgary, in yeah. Cochrane. Okay. Yeah. So closer towards the Rockies? Absolutely. Oh, nice. It's why nice. I moved to Canada. So I this is where I wanted to be, but I really do enjoy my work and people think I'm nuts for driving so far to go to the office, but it's uh, certainly not every week. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, being, being so close to the Rockies and we were talking about grouse hunting earlier, have you hunted the 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 blue grouse or the dusky grouse that they're called now at the higher elevations mm -hmm. in the Rockies. The yeah. blue the blue grouse, yeah. We've yeah. had some of those. We got a couple of those last fall, not many, but it's usually spruce or roughed. Yeah. Because yeah. those uh well they call them duskies now. They Okay. They uh yeah, we always we grew up always knowing them as blue grouse, mm -hmm. but then they split the classification where the interior ones are duskies and the coastal variety are sooties and okay. before they were all just called blue grouse and apparently the main difference is one does its mating calls from the ground and the other from the tree so i think our duskies do their mating stuff calls the males from the ground so but they're huge they're yeah. huge, huge yeah. birds. Man. It's yeah. a lot of effort to get up there to, yeah, to get them. But man, they're so big. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> no, it's a great place to live. Yes, great place to live. I so. love it. <laughs> so, you, you listened to our episode um, with Bill from the. Alberta Trappers Association, and we were talking like all mm -hmm. things trapping. And we touched on a project that the Alberta Trappers Association had uh, been involved with and members supporting um, a caribou study in northern Alberta, um, 
putting out um, cameras and stuff for for research work and and you would listen to that and and then you wrote in and said like hey this was a project that i worked on it would be pretty cool to like dig into this a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and and uh we were like that's a great idea and so here here you are yes thanks thanks for doing that thanks for reaching out so that's You're welcome. awesome that's awesome so you know, we've had people reach out to us before, like expressing an interest to come come on the podcast. And we're usually like, nah, because it's like they're trying to use this to sell something, mm. you know, like uh, books or uh, e-bikes or like some sort of, you know, Gizmo like we're like a product. Yeah. yeah. In, infomercial, um, some dog, a couple of dog outfits keep keep bugging us. Wow. Um, I think the only thing I can sell is public access to the data for free. <laughs> that's really all I can. <laughs> oh, that's, what, oh yeah, that's what it's all about, right? Like <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> huh. So you don't, you don't have like some sort of a side business or you? No, I don't. I here. certainly don't. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's good. So we're, we're not here promoting, no. promoting your new, uh, your new book on whatever. So definitely <laughs> not. That'd be cool. It'd be cool though. I don't, I don't, I get it. I get people have to do that, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have our listeners in mind and it's like, they like the content they like to learn. And, and, um, you know, I think you can kind of like know when you're being sold something. So, mm-hmm. So we answered your email and said, yes, let's come on the show and talk about your work Mm -hmm. on the Northwest Species at Risk Committee. So you were a a lead planner, lead administrator on that committee for quite a few years. You just you just finished up your term at the end of last December. Yeah. So the the. The committee is called the Alberta Northwest Peace at Risk Committee. Most people just call it NWSARD for the acronym. And they established in late 2016. So I was with them from the beginning at my previous oh, wow. job. And the reason why they created the group was essentially um, in 2016, the previous uh, provincial government had made uh some big moves on the caribou file. So they put out a brand new caribou action plan, which involved uh, the permanent protection of 1.8 million hectares in Northwest Alberta. And it was quite, it's quite a large footprint for the rural municipalities up there. And there wasn't really a management plan put out of, you know, how these areas were going to be managed to conserve the caribou or or anything like that. So the municipalities came together. So this group involves five municipalities, all in the northwest corner, two urbans and three rural. And they created this committee to learn as much as they possibly could about uh, recovery planning for caribou. And then I guess more broadly species at risk that affect northwest alberta okay yeah because from me so this is this really interests me because these are municipalities that are kind of like um i guess leading the charge in kind of like this broader land management uh in in their jurisdictions mm. so that's super cool that that's a really neat a neat a neat model and a neat a neat concept but is 
is is it true like the interest lies for a municipality because something to do with wildlife or the environment uh, or or both um, is it's cross cutting across everything that's important to communities. Mm -hmm. So you have people that are interested in wildlife. There's an economic, you know, um, um, center or hub around wildlife in most, you know, places in Canada. And then you have industry, the resource industries, oil and gas in Northern Alberta mm -hmm. and forestry. And, and so communities are always interested in all of those things and not losing one over the other. And was it, was that like a, of a flavor or an interest of the municipalities because of that? Absolutely. I mean, the, interest. Yeah, yeah. The, the local government is, you know, the closest level of government to the community. So we had so many people coming to us. So whether they were um, recreational users of the backcountry, trappers, outfitters, hunters, um, you know, industry, the socioeconomic impact on communities. There was just lots of concern and obviously for jobs too, as well as the environment and the fact that they didn't really have a plan for, um, you know, um, the wildlife together, like with the uh, interaction or relationship between other species too. So that was a really big concern. Um, and they felt that, you know, once these permanent protected areas had gone in, there are other examples of those around the region where management plans were supposed to be created and they weren't. And these places have just been left to, you know, wildfire to burn. They're not actively managing that either. Um, so there are some areas that were already conserved within the caribou ranges that weren't being managed and the fear was that these areas were just going to add to that and uh, it wasn't ultimately going to solve the problem for caribou mm. so the municipalities really took a proactive approach that they wanted to get involved and help where they could um, so they did want to stop the plan or at least press the pause button um, be, uh, until more information could be gathered and um, considered in the process so that, uh, you know, the the plan was meaningful, if you like, that involved communities as well as what was best for the wildlife. Right. So so the when you say plan was like was or is like the end end goal here, like a land use plan or a land use strategy, is that kind of what what you're talking mm -hmm. about? There's a number of them. So what was released in 2016 was was an action plan for caribou. So it involved, okay. you know, the entire province essentially, but broken up into different areas. So north, um, east, west, central, which is your Jasper area and Grand Cache, and then the northwest. Uh, there is um, a regional land use plan that's supposed to be coming, but that uh, the municipalities have been waiting for that for ten plus years. So where the current provincial government has gone, so the UCP, uh, they are doing sub-regional plans right now. So it's a much smaller area. It's bigger than the Caribou Range, smaller than the regional. It's kind of in the middle. So this sub-regional plan is going to feed into the regional plan and tick all sorts of boxes, including um, range plans for Caribou. Okay. Now, the, the committee 
you got involved in research and on the ground stuff mm -hmm. and tell us a little bit more about like who your partners and stuff were on on that and and was was the research projects maybe tell us because i think it was just more than caribou mm -hmm. um was that part of what you needed to when you say get answers to questions like is that was then yeah. research so, became the tool for that so in 2017 the municipalities the the nwsr group decided to develop a recommendations report for the provincial and federal governments so while they the the provincial government had kind of pushed the pause button on the action plan the municipalities developed a recommendations report and this involved uh so much stakeholder engagement like we went to Ottawa, we had, you know, Federal Forestry Association, FPAC uh, was involved, the, the provincial one as well, the AFPA. Uh, there was, you know, environmental groups that we met with, so CPAWS and AWA as well. Um, the Pembina Institute, there was meeting with uh, all the different um, employers and, and uh, mills and energy groups all the trappers, the public, like we had open houses, surveys, meetings, like you wouldn't believe. And the overall consensus that came out of this was questioning the accuracy of the data that went into the provincial government's action plan for caribou uh, and whether, and, and then the age too, so whether we could help to improve that. That's essentially where it came from. So I got connected with the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute because I'd seen some of the work that they were doing in other caribou ranges and felt that perhaps we could do that work in the Northwest. What would it take? How much money do we need? Like, who, who can we get involved? That type of thing. The NWSR committee were very clear from the beginning that local people wanted to help and we needed to involve them. So that meant the best person on the ground is going to be the trappers, right? So where the, mm. they're operating within the caribou ranges, they have their dispositions on the trap lines and they would be the best people to involve. So we had ongoing conversations with uh, ABMI, uh, so at the U of A there, and then it took a couple of years. So this was 17, it was probably 2018, when we really started ramping things up with ABMI and we got like a draft scope of work together, um, we worked out all the protocols for the project because they have to be standardized in order for our project to be comparable to the one that was in Northeast Alberta and in Saskatchewan. So we're comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges. Um, mm. And then it wasn't until I think it was the summer of, 2019 or the spring that the chair of the group and myself went to um, the trappers uh, board meeting in Westlock and presented this project to them and essentially said this is what ABMI is doing this is what we can do in northwest Alberta but we would like the trappers involved to do the field component and they pretty much just said there and then let's do it so that's kind of how everybody came to be involved. Um, and then the other parties that are involved, because there's another portion to this project, which was the landscape monitoring. 
And that involved funding from three forestry companies. Uh, so Zavisha sawmill, uh, Sawmills in um, the Worsley Clear Hills area. Then there was uh, the Manning Forest Products uh, out of Manning. And then the Boucher Bros Lumber, which is um, in Namper in Alberta there. So they got involved because they are interested in the uh, in the footprint accuracy in the bush. So oh, that was okay. a, that was another okay. component to this. Yeah, because the ABMI has a uh, human footprint inventory, and it's essentially a wall to wall spatial data set of the entire province. And they have like 117 different features. There's like 20 individual sub layers. And they map the entire province, like all disturbances you could think of. So they hadn't really had the opportunity to test that in the field. So we added that to this project. So that's why the forestry companies got involved as well. Oh, okay. Okay. Very, very cool. Um, now, one of the th would be as we when we were setting this podcast up, we had some communications going back and forth. Um, there's something you had said in one of your emails, which I think is really a fundamental part of kind of wanting to learn some some thoughts and stuff from you around this. And um, I'll just kind of like just sort of read it a little bit. Um, the Hunter Conservationist podcast is way better than Meat Eater, and I would like to come on <laughs> your show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Um, okay. Uh, there, there's that part. Of and, course. Um, <laughs> of course. But you, you had said you said the, the the more the more important part is is you said that there's this huge disconnect between government, science, industry, and the public when it comes to environment and wildlife management and bringing them together was was a huge challenge and. Mm -hmm. Man, I think we just see that that scenario unfolding every single day, um, especially with wildlife management. Like the, there, there isn't too many things in our society that you've probably realized in Canada that people everywhere are passionate about wildlife. Like regardless of whether you're a hunter or not, mm -hmm. there's people have their views about it and what's happening and what's going on and what should be done, and they're very passionate about it. Um, but but that passion sometimes like um breaks people apart you know it like does. like uh creates divisions and creates division between like hunters and scientists and industry and trappers and and you know and then government and changing government and different policies mm. and like you said 10 years waiting for you know a, a plan and stuff and so so Break that down for us a little bit in your experience um, on the Caribou Project and yeah. kind of like what 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 were the disconnects? Start start there. Well, I, were I, people not seeing eye to eye? Yeah, I feel that it was, you know, when you have people who are using the landscape on a on a daily basis, weekly basis, whatever. They've been going out to the trap line for years, right? Some of them decades have been going out to this area. They know the land. They know the cut lines. They know, you know, the density of the trees and, you know, what animals they're going to find where. And then you have this spatial footprint on a computer screen that goes, ah, 
this area is 90% disturbed. We need to fix this. And you've got a trapper standing there going, no, it's not. I go out there every day, like, you know, the, the trees are, are uh, yay tall and you can't see nothing, you know, like all this kind of stuff. So that was really the big push for us to do the habitat mm. portion, right? Because we had, you know, our local boots on the ground saying one thing, and then you've got the federal government, you know, saying from 50,000 feet in space, we can see these lines and this isn't good enough, right? So we've got um, caribou ranges up in the northwest uh, where the federal government, so I think it was 2008 to 2012, somewhere around there, where they did the federal recovery strategy. And essentially every single disturbance was buffered by 500 meters on either side. And then they add that up and you have, so for example, the Bistu range is 94%, it's considered 94% disturbed with all the buffers. But if you take the buffers away, it's a hell of a lot less. So the buffers essentially are the zone of influence, like the zone of impact on the animal, which again causes issues when you have people who live in the area who say, yes, you know, these roads exist or these seismic lines exist, but nobody uses them. So how can a seismic line that sees maybe one quad a week versus, you know, a road that sees hundreds of vehicles every day be considered the same, right? Like that, yeah, Yeah. that was the big disconnect that we were coming up against. And I mean, that's not going to change. We, you know, submitted that as our feedback to all um, the plans that we have commented on as a as a group, that uh, these types of disturbances you have to factor in the use. You cannot consider them the same. So that's always something that you know we we have um, submitted, but we don't see that changing. It's difficult. Right. It costs time and money to go find out, you know, the use of these lines. Like who's going to do that? Right. So it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. I. Lots of things like that happen in science where where they like, let's just take, for example, like this, like, you know, you can go, here's a linear feature. Here's some seismic lines. They're three meters wide. Then you know, you can, you can map that out and see that on the landscape, but then, you know, you can go like, well, how, how far, how how much impact does that have on wildlife? Like how far are they displaced away from that, that linear feature that they don't like being too close to it. And it's like, well, there was this study done in Oregon on elk where they found that when a quad went by the elk would go like 750 meters away from So that's, that's our best available knowledge. So then they would apply that as an assumption in the model. And then yeah. what you're saying is people that are out there on the ground going, no, it's not actually like that. The animals are actually walking up and down the cut line because it's exactly. like it's easier going than in the bush. So that's not, yeah. that's not but, real. And then when you try and explain that, that that is, you know, the, the element that we put into the model, it's like, well, come on, the reality is blah 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 right so that was kind of what we were coming up against and you know it got to the point where i think it was early 2018 
the provincial government came to high level to do an open house on their plan. And they had, I don't know, nine or 10 staff, you know, with a a couple of boards each and they would explain, um, you know, this element to the plan or that element to the plan. And honestly, the venue that they held this open house at, the capacity is 300 or 350. There was like 11 to 1200 people showed up that night and they were mad. (laughs) They were mad. Like it was minus 10. The queue was all throughout the car park. Like when I was in there, it was like sardines in this room. It was just, you know, people just, they didn't get it, right? They didn't understand what the government was trying to do. And, you know, the government puts out the communication. They try and be transparent, but people just don't understand where they're coming from. So that was another big disconnect too. So it was very telling when you have that many people in an area that's like, I don't know, if you if you go at all five municipalities, there's like, what, twenty to 30,000 people that live there and 1,200 of them drove hundreds of kilometers to come to high level for this open house. It was uh, very so, telling. So what, what was the main concern of the community members that were there at that, the government open house, like when it specifically, when it come to caribou habitat, was it the jobs issue and mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. it was, it was jobs versus, you know, the feeling that if the government protected that much of the landscape, what would really change for caribou, right? It's like it's lines on a map. If we're not actually changing what's occurring, then what's the difference, right? Like, so a lot of people felt that most of the industry would be told to leave the area. Um, and then, you know, is there a reclamation plan? Like there were none of those details were were really in there. So it just, it felt like it was, even though it, for many people, it was a long time coming, you know, like, I mean, for environmental groups and stuff like they, they wanted to see that. Um, and the municipalities, they're not against protected areas, but they, they, they feel that going that large, that big is too much. There needs to be um, a better balance, especially on a working uh, landscape. So that was really, you know, where this group fits in, where this committee uh, came to the table and tried to assist. And I mean, it's been several years now and they're just getting new information and we can get into that shortly here. But yeah, yeah. so so that you kind of the committee sort of inserted itself into that dynamic mm. to start saying, there's all this polarization and conflict and stuff in the community and that. And it's like, we've got to try to like find a path forward exactly. here. Is that kind of, okay. Exactly. Well, and they yeah, want to contribute, right? So the government does collect data on wildlife. We know that, right? Like they they may not do it every single year, but they certainly do fly a lot. And they, they we do have a lot of caribou, particularly um, up in the area, the, the uh, female uh, calf cow uh, um, pairs that have the collars and stuff. And they've been doing that for a relatively long time. Um, but this research was really to complement and contribute, uh, you know, to to that 
knowledge that they, they've been building o- over uh, a long period of time. We felt that it was less invasive. You know, it doesn't involve flying around, looking outside of the airplane for hours on end. You can just put these devices out in the bush and it collects so much data, right? Like you don't have to do anything. You go out once a year, change the batteries and the cards and you're good, right? So. Huh. So now, now start to walk us through some of the things that you were involved with, that the committee was involved in to start um, executing some of the projects and getting mm. community members and groups and stuff involved in, in the research. Um, did, it, did it start with having to kind of get buy-in to like the project or the research, like getting people to go, yeah, I can see there's value mm. in that? Was that... Was that ever a It was to, you know, to a certain extent. Like when we first started this, it was really, you know, me as the lead administrator for the group looking at, because there's there's a number of groups out there doing research, right? FRI research is another one. So it was kind of seeing what everybody was doing. And I felt like what the ABMI was doing um, was perhaps the better way to go. Um, because we knew we could get support from trappers because we know a lot of them, right? Like the communities are very close-knit up there. So we knew that we could likely get trappers involved if we could work with the association even better. Um, So I spent a lot of time working with ABMI on the project design. And then, of course, one thing that cannot be overlooked is the funding. So... We looked at a number of grants to try and get this funded because it wasn't cheap, right? Like we were looking at anywhere from, you know, two hundred and fifty to $500,000 to fund this project. So we looked at a few different grants and we narrowed it down to one. And it was a federal grant. And I submitted uh, an expression of interest. It was uh, December of 2018, I believe. And, you know, they wrote us back and they shortlisted us and said, please submit a full proposal. So I worked with ABMI. We put everything together, sent it in, and we were applying for, I think it was 250 at that point, and we sourced the rest from elsewhere. And um, I think it was Canada Day in 2018, and I got the bad news letter. I, I got back to the office. I hadn't been there for a couple of weeks, and I had this letter sitting on my desk, and I opened it, and it said, you know, it was quite a, um, you know, a personalized letter. It wasn't generic, and it basically said, look, you know, all of these goals that you're working towards, which is pretty much more R&D, like research and development, Um, is excellent, but they made a a decision to only fund projects that were actually doing habitat restoration. And because we weren't taking that step, we were doing like the planning stage, which was all we could do, right? We're not going to start going out in the bush and replanting, uh, you know, footprint and industry uh, disturbances. Like that's not our job, right? So we uh, we totally understood that um, the, the reason behind that. So I gave it two or three weeks and then I went back to the committee and said, if we're serious about doing something that's going to contribute to the body of knowledge for caribou and get the locals involved and, you know, feel like we're going to try and improve these data sets, I think that we should pay for it. 
And they basically just said to me, well, how much do you need? And I said $400,000 and they ummed and aahed for, for a bit and then they went, let's do it. So the municipalities put in like 400 grand to this project. And then the rest of it we got um, from the forestry companies through um, FRIA, so that's the Forest Resource Improvement Association of Alberta. They pay in like a, a stamp duty or whatever. Okay. Um, so then they, they can access that uh, for certain research projects. So they all put in sponsor letters and said that they wanted their funds to go to this. Um, so all in all, it's ended up to be about 500000 over three years. So it's significant. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So one of the questions I have, because this is really cool that municipalities are doing this. I'm not sure how familiar you are, you are with with like municipal governments like outside of Alberta. So in British Columbia, where we're from, like a municipality is is like is the town. Mm -hmm. it, it's like it, it's not a bigger geographic area around a community. It's like it is basically like city limits, fire okay. department, mall. That's the municipality. That's the municipal government. And and generally they kind of don't think out beyond those bounds too, too too far now is that different in alberta like would a like the municipality of high level include the town and a broader geographic area around it or or not, is that different not too much so the town of high level is uh, an urban municipality so we have a population of about four thousand people in a relatively small footprint um, but the municipality around us, so that's a rural municipality, uh, is large. Like it's almost as big as uh, New Brunswick. Like it's huge. Geographically. And they, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then they have um, hamlets, like small communities. They don't have like a town or a city. They have hamlets within the rural municipality. So that's kind of the difference. So we're, gotcha. we're an urban municipality inside of a rural municipality. I, I like a town of 4,000 people, Curtis, is urban. Yes, in the north. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the north. In the north. Yeah, I, I can relate because that's, like, yeah. that's like 3,990 people more than I, I, that I, I like to have around. There around you go. Bit. Yeah, okay, so so that, that makes sense. So in BC, mm -hmm. we would have a, like a municipality would be like the town. Okay. And then that larger geographic area would be um, a regional district. Yes. They would yeah. call that. And then the regional districts would be like various geographic areas. So, um, okay, I completely, completely understand. So so it is the communities, larger outlying areas and and smaller Mm -hmm. settled areas so, hamlets so, that that's involved in this project yeah so the interest for like high level with you know the these regions within the within the municipality where caribou are is you know obviously our residents work out in the bush right like that's where they go for their bread and butter to to work every day we have people that live in town that you know, go out snowmobiling or hunting or, or whatever it is. So that is really the interest for a high level and its constituents um, and, you know, why they got involved in uh, in this project or committee rather. So. Okay. Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about 
now the project. So you, mm-hmm. you got half a million bucks um, to, un- so obviously a multi-year project. Yeah. It which is pretty like- cool because generally funding agencies don't like multi-year projects. Mm-hmm. They like you to like beginning and wrap it up and they put a bow on it and you're done with it forever within the fiscal funding period. And then they Absolutely. don't want to see you again. So Absolutely. Um, so so that, I guess, that, I guess that's cool. the benefit of them funding the project themselves. Cause they just, you know, if we end up spending a bit more the one year and have less to carry forward, but there's less expenses the following year, we've definitely learned as it's gone on. So for me being um, the administrator, in the first year, particularly because we got our first year of uh, deployment and uh, project management and reporting and, you know, swapping out the equipment on driving hundreds of hundreds of kilometers to get the trappers, whatever they need, um, delivering stuff to AVMI, like all that kind of stuff. We've worked all that out now. So now that I am no longer there, there is a process <laughs> and they, they're good to go for the next couple of years. So the project has started in 2019 and it will finish in 2023, I believe. Okay. It'd be December 31st, 2023. So the the one portion with the, the landscape monitoring with the forestry companies, that was done in a year because it involved um, the forestry association, so the the freer um, group. So because the funds technically came from there to uh, the research institute, to IBMI, that had to be done. Uh, I think it was, they didn't give us too long. I think it was six months, maybe eight. So it was quite uh, intense, Mm. that portion. So essentially for the, the landscape monitoring, we had three questions. So we were asking, what is the accuracy of the existing footprint data that ABMI has? And then what is the state of vegetation growth, like, you know, on some of these vegetated footprint types? And then also uh, another question posed was, where should um, restoration, habitat restoration uh, efforts on seismic lines be prioritised? So those were like the three questions that we had. And, you know, forestry companies were were involved uh, in this portion of it. So what we did, we did a like a photogrammetry collection process. So that involved new aerial imagery. Um, we didn't fly the whole ranges because the Chinchaga range in Alberta is oh, it's, it's more than one point seven million hectares like it's quite large so the area that we did in Chinchaga was about 112 or 114,000 hectares and then in Caribou Mountains that one's even bigger that range is about 2 million um, hectares so we flew about 75,000 hectares there and collected new imagery then that was compared to like existing LIDAR, so the light detection arranging where they do the laser to measure the ground and it sends the data back up to the sensor. Um, and then we also did a habitat ground truthing. So we had field crews from ABMI went out to 120 or 130 sites within the two ranges and they uh, took pictures uh, recorded um, vegetation type. They met physically measured the height of vegetation and, you know, recorded all that information. And we compared all three together. So the new imagery, 
the existing LIDO and existing footprint and then the ground truthing. And uh, essentially what we found was the accuracy was quite high, which I mm. think a lot of people were quite surprised about. So it was approximately 93% accurate. Um, we, we did have instances where footprint was recorded in the data set and when we went to the location, there was no footprint there. It had regrown or it was recorded incorrectly, whichever. So we, you know, that they've made edits to their data set to take that out. There were instances where the footprint was recorded incorrectly, uh, whether it's the feature or the sublayer was wrong. Um, and yeah, I think that's hmm. it. Yeah, that was really the only discrepancies. So overall, it was uh, it was pretty accurate in the, yeah. in the in the two ranges. Yeah, yeah. So, so just uh, just in case some people are listening, sort of going like, okay, what what exactly are they talking about? So, so you get caribou that live in forested habitats mm-hmm. in northern Alberta, and you've got this industry on the landscape oil and gas exploration that makes a lot of cut lines um so like little narrow lines that go Mm -hmm. straight and they crisscross each other because they're they got big equipment they go out there and they're looking for oil and gas deposits in in the ground then you have forestry that's putting in roads bridges logging cut blocks you know those sorts of things so so that's all basically removing forest that's mm-hmm. very important for boreal woodland caribou. Mm-hmm. And the footprint that Haley's talking about is like it's measuring how much of humans disturbed or how much of the land base have they cleared in these little cut lines, roads, clear cuts, all this sort of stuff. But then as, you know, you probably know from your experience in the bush that these things start to regrow from the time it's a fire or a log block or even a a seismic line, then nature's trying to regrow that. So at any point in time, you might be able to see a cut line or an old road from an aerial photograph. But like Haley's saying, when you get down on the ground, it doesn't mean they're all bare, bare ground, like just like you know, and like grass high or, you know, vegetation. Exactly. Some could be 40, 50 years old and the trees are like the trappers are saying like, hey, you can't even drive down that one or see that one, you exactly. know, so it's different on the on the ground. So what what you were involved in is is people on the ground, ground truthing, mm-hmm. um, one, is this disturbance actually there? And then sort of what state of regrowth is exactly. it in? Because at some point as the stuff starts to regrow, wildlife come back and start using it longer for caribou earlier for something like a weasel or some mm-hmm. you know some some alder flycatcher birds or something like that so uh it's yeah basically so that was your your first research question is mm-hmm. what's the human impact on the forest and what's kind of the state is is our understanding of that mm-hmm. accurate and, and-, and you're saying it was yeah, and the Pretty reason accurate. and the reason why um, testing the accuracy of this particular data set, so the human uh, footprint inventory that belongs to ABMI, is because at the federal level for caribou recovery planning, 
they use um, a federal data set that's at 50,000 uh, feet, where, uh, sorry, metres, whereas the, um, uh, the ABMI one is the one that the uh, province of Alberta uses, and it's at a much higher resolution. So to test that footprint is essentially testing the data that the government's using, which is what the uh, constituents that were coming to the municipalities were questioning the accuracy of. <laughs> mm, <laughs> so that's okay. why it was so important to check that one. And, you know, some of the differences between the two ranges. So in Northwest Alberta, there's five caribou ranges. There's the Chinchaga, which is along the BC border, um, I guess, uh, east of Pink Mountain, like kind of over that way. Yep. Uh, and then west of Manning in Alberta, south around the lake there, the, there's that one. Um, the Bistu one is north of there, which is also BC border and the territories up in the corner by Zammer and Rainbow Lake. Mm-hmm. We, we have Yates, uh, Caribou Mountains and then Red Earth. And where this study was done was in the Chinchaga range and in the Caribou Mountains ranges. The, the committee wanted to do all five, but I mean, we're already talking you know, $500,000 just for the two. So there was just no way that they could add to that. And there has been work ongoing in the Bistu range already, uh, which is publicly available. So we were able to draw on that information for this study as well. Um, But essentially between the two ranges, we found that about 75% of the sample areas that we checked in the Chinchaga had a regrowth, you know, uh, just below 1.5 metres in height and comparing that with 40% of the Caribou Mountains uh, that was below 1.5. And then the forestry harvest areas showed the most regrowth and the energy industry wells showed the least. So those were some of the differences uh, between the two. And then most of the lines that have regrowth, um, like seismic lines, uh, pipelines, roads, that type of thing was like shrubs and mosses was most of the vegetation that was made up on the lines that weren't growing back. And of course, there's a difference with the north-south versus east-west growth with the sunlight. Oh, right. Yeah. And that, yeah. 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 So, and how long the snow stays exactly. in place, which affects the length of the yeah. growing season. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe explain a little bit like why why that data set of understanding the size of the footprint in endangered caribou habitat, how much it's regrown, and understanding the accuracy of the federal government's assessment of mm-hmm. habitat in the caribou areas and the provinces. So the biggest tool, I guess, in um, the plan to recover the caribou is always the habitat. Right. That's what, you know, everybody is going after to improve. And, you know, if if the habitat is improved, caribou are not the only ones that will benefit. Right. Like that's the general consensus. Um, But making sure that the data we're using to feed these action plans is accurate is essential, really, because we don't want to see. Um, actions taken by government, say, removing, uh, you know, certain industries from using an area because they feel that the impact that they're having is a is bigger than it is, 
you know, like this goes, goes back to the use of the lines, right? Like if there is um, an active well or active disposition somewhere, um, but it doesn't mean that somebody's driving out there every single day, then what is the actual impact of that disturbance, right? So like you'll have people working out in the bush that uh, see the animals on these lines all the time. And it, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're, they're using them out of ease or whatever. It could just be a quick way to get to wherever they're going, or they could just happen to come across them at, uh, you know, a particular point. But I think just making sure that the data they're using is as accurate and as current as possible is going to help make the plans that they implement more successful. Right. That's really, you know, right. the crux of it, I think. Yeah. And, and the bottom line is kind of that question about can industry, primarily oil and gas development and forestry, can they continue to operate in certain areas and to kind of what, what level? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a, I guess, a key consideration in understanding the the existing level of impact is, can you add more to it without affecting caribou? Because mm-hmm. that's people's jobs. That's the economy, right? Like, there's people yeah. that just say, like, well, just everybody just get out and let let the caribou recover. But like you're saying, there's there's towns, municipalities that are trying to balance both. So absolutely. Um, and the other part to this, the, the landscape monitoring was the restoration, the habitat restoration prioritization. So the analysis that was done for this uh, by ABMI, it's done at quite uh, a course level. Like they do it at the township level. So it's quite, you know, high level, not <laughs> not high level, but high level. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> essentially... High level and high level. Exactly. <laughs> so they do um, an, an analysis that they call, uh, you know, getting the best bang for your buck. So essentially the, the bang is the gain in undisturbed habitat following restoration of seismic lines. And then the buck is um, the density of seismic lines to be restored, right? So they kind of do it as a prioritization and priority one is uh areas that can be you know restored using less money right you'll get more um and you'll gain more undis- uh, undisturbed habitat for less dollars so one way to move this forward it was quite a course analysis that was done um and it did highlight you know at the township level the different areas that uh, that could be prioritized um but to perhaps move that as a reality is like what they're doing in northeast Alberta with uh, Alpac, I think is the forestry company there, is working that prioritization into their FMA agreement. So looking at, you know, um, different areas that perhaps they would never have considered before, um, you know, may not have felt it was their responsibility because they're seismic lines that the forestry company didn't put in, um, but they can start adding some of those to um, their replanting plans annually to kind of increase um, the undisturbed habitats. So that's one way to move that forwards. And that was, you know, uh, another part of this study that was completed with um, the forestry companies and their, their uh, freer dollars there. Huh, interesting. There was some research just came out early this year. I believe it was early in this this year, looking at restoration of 
linear features in caribou recovery zones and what sort of uh, my interpretation was your best bang for your buck in restoring you know seismic lines in caribou habitat were in areas that were considered low productivity habitats so there were fewer moose mm-hmm. The caribou would still be there, it would be important caribou habitat, but when there were fewer moose, meaning it was overall a less productive ecosystem where caribou can do better in like lower productivity ecosystems, there were fewer wolves. So your best bang for your buck for caribou is to restore habitats in areas with less moose. Exactly. And and when you did that, it's kind of like you messed up the wolves from being able to more efficiently hunt caribou. and but if you went to areas where there were lots of moose and caribou and you're trying to restore these these habitats the wolves were just they had so many moose to feed on and they were still carrying the caribou it wasn't your best place to to, no. to invest to your use your so, money exactly yeah, no so that yeah. that's an important part of all of this is uh yeah making the most of money. the resources yep, yeah absolutely so. um, but cool cool partnership to get a forestry company well you were mm-hmm. saying like in the northeast involved in yeah. doing some restoration on oil and gas yeah land, the, so. the oil the oil and gas company up there is also involved uh synovis i think it is uh so mm. they're also mm. involved in that so Oh, yeah, cool. it's a pretty cool partnership that they have going on up there. We don't quite have that in the Northwest, but we're not saying we couldn't get there. Yeah. So, you know, maybe projects like this help. So, Well, it's you're, you're bringing people together, which I think mm-hmm. is a really important important thing, right? Um, somebody's got to be the catalyst to get people together and and ch- chart a path forward. So, Because people always say, well, we all need to work together and, and we all have this common interest. But mm-hmm. then it's like, well, then why can't you just do it on your own? Exactly. It's like, it's like we got to step in and make it happen. Exactly. So, so we, there was another part of your caribou work, which was the monitoring work, right? Yes. Actually monitoring wildlife. And it was more than just the caribou. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, so that is us, true. Tell us about that part. Yes. So this involved the Alberta Trappers Association. So after we went to the Trapper Association and we did our presentation and they said, yes, we'd love to help you. They actually um, put a representative on the committee. So he is the director for the North. Uh, he has a trap line up in the Caribou Mountains and he is um, a liaison for the, the Trappers Association on the Northwest Beast at Risk Committee. So he you know, goes to every meeting and uh, he's in charge of coordinating the field efforts. So he and I were really working closely on that. I was more on the IBMI side, um, coordinating uh, equipment and training and driving all over the place and making sure he had everything he needed and then you know to go out to the bush to uh, to do the work there so to kind of lay this all out we have to match the model that they have in north east alberta and saskatchewan so that involves uh three camera grids and the size of these grids they're uh, four kilometers by 12 and a half kilometers. That's how big the grid is. Each grid has 25 cameras and then four um, audio devices, so autonomous recording units or ARUs. 
And so four cameras will be paired with one of those. The, the audio device has to be at least 1.5 meters from the ground and the camera has to be one meter above the ground. So, so you're, you're talking about like the, the trail cameras? Yes. Yeah. So that these hunters might use. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so okay. we, we use Taking pictures um, of Bigfoot when they walk by. Exactly. Yep. We, we use the Reconyx cameras. Uh, so we got them out of the US, I believe. And they're, you know, strapped or nailed to the tree. So, well, screwed in. I think that we were using drills to, to put them up, except for in the park. So in the park, you weren't allowed to do that. We had to strap them to the tree because um, we had some units in the Caribou Mountains Wildland Park. It's a provincial park up by Wood Buffalo National Park there. So those ones we couldn't do. But uh, anyway, all of the cameras had to be a minimum of one kilometre from the next camera. So we, you know, used a model, uh, pumped in some information. So the reason for the three grids is latitude. So you've got a north, a mid and a south grid in, in both the caribou ranges. And we are looking for, you know, some fire disturbance, you know, different age of fire, um, other disturbance features, whether it's seismic lines, pipelines, roads, uh, cut blocks, wetlands. Like we're looking upland, looking for lots of different conditions. And then the computer model generates your points and spits out your 25 uh, points for your cameras, um, and then which ones would be paired with ARUs. So, then, so you you want to you want to put cameras to monitor wildlife activity mm-hmm. in in certain habitat features. Yes. So, so that you can kind of like, because if you just sort of did it randomly, you might like by random chance not have any cameras, say in riparian areas. Mm-hmm. Where you, what you were doing was making sure that you had some good coverage. Yeah. Care. Gotcha. Yeah, and gotcha. the other okay. and the and the one thing that didn't go into this, which I, I think did confuse a lot of people, and it's the most feedback that we got from uh, the communities was, you know, why couldn't trapper knowledge have been involved, right? Like, why couldn't we put the cameras where the trappers know where the caribou are or where they knew know where the wolves are or the moose or, or whatever? Right. But we didn't want to. Um, you know, skew the results or, you know, have any type of influence. So it had to be random to a certain degree, but we wanted to try and hit all these different habitat features, conditions and types. So, yeah, yeah. that is a tough one. <laughs> yes. Um, I think going from science to the community level of that understanding, right? Of science wants to uh, figure out something on the landscape, but they don't want to bias the results. So if if you say, well, what type of animals live in this habitat? And you put all of your trail cameras in whitetail habitat, then you just come back and say, man, there's whitetails everywhere and there's no moose. Exactly. Um, Right? So you want to kind of sort of capture the variability of the habitat types, but not completely bias where people like us when we go out on the land we're like well i'm looking for a moose so i'm gonna go here and you're like there's no moose or there's lots of moose so why don't you know they people like me go to meetings and say what are you talking about there's mm-hmm. moose everywhere i see them every time i go out and, yeah. it, and it's like i think that's one of those disconnects you were talking about between mm-hmm what people see on the ground and then setting up a scientific study so that it, it, 
it's objective, but captures the variability without completely biasing your results. Right? Exactly. And, and, and that, that's, that's a hard, that's a hard gap mm -hmm. to communicate that, um, um, to people because they are, they go out there and, you know, they say like, every time I go out, I see some caribou, but it's mm -hmm. like, we've been flying this area for 10 years and there's only like six. Exactly. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? I see six every day I go out. Every and, time. You know, I know. So I had yeah, a lot of these one-on-one -on -one conversations with outfitters, hunters, you know, some, <laughs> gotcha. some of the indigenous peoples were contacting me going, I found one of your cameras on the weekend, stupid spot. And I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> so I'm like. Nobody, nobody shot a moose there for 40 years. Why exactly. do you get a camera on there for? <laughs> and I'm like trying to explain to them how this project is set up. So like every week I was having the exact same conversation, like three, four times a week with different people. So but it, it's funny as well that I have, we've had scientists on the show that say, you know, they've done a research project like this, then they come back and they present the results to the community. And they're like, that's what we were telling you five years ago, right? Yeah. Why didn't you just listen to us in the first place? And it would have saved us half a million dollars. And what the scientists have said is, is the community input and the community knowledge is very, very important in a research project like this because it it gives them the nuance it gives them direction in setting up um like a scientific study to collect uh the information then then sometimes when these these scientific studies which are rigorous and objective end up confirming what the community members already say scientists don't see that as a waste of money or as a bad thing they just say yeah science actually confirmed mm -hmm. what you were telling us and that is a good thing yes we base this study off of what you said and looking at it from a scientific method perspective it confirms what you're saying mm -hmm. and they said that's a good thing sometimes they call it what was it uh something like confirming the obvious or proving the obvious or, you know, or yeah. something like that. But it, it lends credibility too, right? Like, cause you, they have oh, set absolutely. up, you know, these protocols and confirmed what they're saying. And, you know, the way I, I look at it is like when you're looking at stats, right? Like you have all these quantitative stats, like hard number crunching, but then you go out and do key stakeholder interviews to add like the qualitative uh, component or the context that yep. you know creates a story around the figures and that is essentially you know what we were trying to do with this I mean we had all sorts of information from people I can't tell you how many notes I have in my one note of all these conversations I've had mm. with you know trappers and hunters and, and outfitters and and you know learning from them their insight on the landscape but how do you record that in a data set you, yeah. you can't, right? Like it, it certainly adds, you know, context and and uh, and more weight to it. But doing something like this, you know, confirms, adds credibility, that that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's a little painful getting there sometimes. Mm -hmm. getting, Absolutely, getting, getting both sides to understand. Yeah, and, and and sometimes it's getting the science side to kind of like say. Yeah, you kind of need to listen to what these people are saying because it's like there's like, you know, multiple generations of people here. And if they say like, 
roughly every three decades, like the compare the caribou completely shift their calving grounds. It's like, that's probably a real thing. Like it's mm-hmm. something you should take into consideration. Right. So, Absolutely. so, uh, cool. So, yeah. so now the trapper trappers mm-hmm. in Alberta were a, a key player on the ground and helping get these camera systems out on yes, the ground they were. And, and, and check them. Yeah. So how we went about this, because we had all these fun protocols in place, uh, for example, everybody was given um, GPS locations of where to place these devices. Right. So there was uh, all the cameras had a name and then a GPS location. It needed to be deployed in and around. Right. If you arrived at the spot and there was like no tree you know, pretty difficult, really, unless you're in the middle of the the swamp or the the wetland or whatever, and perhaps a burnt area, like whatever. But we had to find the closest stable tree to to mount them on. So we went through, luckily, pre-COVID, we started this. So we did our first training sessions in person. So we hosted them uh, at the town office in high level for anybody that was doing Caribou Mountains and the north of Chinchaga. And then we went down to Manning and hosted the guys doing the southern portion of Chinchaga. And essentially, ABMI field staff came up. uh, We had all the equipment. So we spent like, you know, $90,000 or something on equipment, like the the conduit poles that, you know, are always in the pictures. You can measure the height of the, the back of the animal. Um, the cameras, the straps, the audio devices, all the batteries, you know, the, all the SD cards, because the audio devices take two cards each um, and they they record quite a lot of data. They're, they're all programmed. So the audio devices would come on at dawn and dusk and then they would be triggered by a, a sound above a certain decibel. And then the cameras were programmed that they would take a photo every two hours and then they were also motion tripped as well. So that's kind of how they were set up. So when the trappers went to go and deploy the equipment, we got the 75 cameras and the um, 12 audio units were deployed in Chinchaga. Those got done, no problem. Caribou Mountains, they got the Southern one done got the middle grid done and we tried to do the northern grid. We've attempted that three times now unsuccessfully. So the northern grid has never been deployed in Caribou Mountains. The uh, terrain up there is very difficult. There is a number of trap lines that are inactive, so they haven't been used for quite some time. Um, And the bush is, you know, quite overgrown and just... The snow depth is really difficult. Um, so they, they tried a different strategy in 2021 to cross the river as soon as it froze and then to just try and get back there. But they just couldn't. The access was just so difficult for them. They couldn't do it. And the one thing you have to consider as well is a lot of these uh, devices because roads and disturbances were factored into their placement they were relatively close to disturbances but the trappers couldn't like a snowmobile right up to the tree you know strap the camera on and then ride to the next one because they're packing the snow down and could influence 
um, animal movement, right? Like wildlife. Oh, okay. So yeah, that was yeah, one of the things yeah. that they couldn't do. So they had oh, to like geez. snowmobile so far, get the snowshoes on and then trek to the tree. Which is kind of the opposite of trapping because they exactly. actually want to get a trail in because <laughs> yeah. then things start walking on the snowmobile trail yeah. and you just set your traps, right? Exactly. The snowmobile trail. Yeah. yeah. So that was interesting. But yeah, huh. so we went and did some practice deployments, you know, in and around high level and Manning. And then, of course, they they went out and they had from first uh, of December until the thirty first of March to get the uh, devices deployed. And right. that's the same window that they have every year. So they they go they went out and deployed them, leave them for twelve months, and then I would bring all the new equipment, so spare cameras in case any are broken by bears, uh, damaged water, damage, uh, stolen, <laughs> you know, like you you never know, right? So we have spare cameras, spare audio equipment, all the SD cards because they've got you know so many to change, and then all the batteries as well, spare batteries in case some are, you know, dead batteries or whatever. And uh, then they would go out and have that same three, four month window to replenish everything. And then they go out with their data sheets with their right in the rain paper and they go to the to the site and they have to, you know, take a picture, uh, fill in the conditions, all sorts of stuff on the data sheets swap out the cards, right? The the because all the cards have got little numbers too, numbers, right? That yeah. correspond to the camera number and name and this, that, the other. So it was a lot of work for the trappers. It really was, you wow. know. Wow, but they was. they they were right in there wanting to, mm-hmm. to help on the study. Now yeah. the this is primarily driven by caribou recovery. Mm-hmm. So obviously the cameras a main question would be is are we picking up caribou in certain areas and like this, you know, what, what's going on using the cameras to capture caribou activity in areas and how many and what kinds and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But were you also looking beyond caribou? Mm-hmm. Like, like just like of all wildlife of fur bears and, moose and and the audio recording like is that for obviously there's only certain things make sounds out there birds and mm-hmm. wolves and coyotes and stuff like yeah was, was it the wildlife monitoring broader than just caribou absolutely so we had one question for the for the wildlife monitoring and that was what is the uh, relative densities of ungulates and predators across the study area that's what okay. we were looking for. Okay. So there's like an equation um, for how they calculate the density, and that was per uh, square kilometer. So X amount of caribou per square kilometer is essentially what we were looking at. So for the density, um, they calculate it as the number of animals observed, and then it's multiplied by time in front of the camera, the camera's field of view divided by the area of the camera's field of view and then they multiply that by the total camera operating time so the the however long the camera is active and that's how they calculated the density so this is abmi doing this analysis so 
the committee was interested in 10 species, 10 focal species is what we narrowed in on. And that's um, the caribou. Uh, you got deer, moose, elk. Um, I said caribou, I didn't know. Black bears, grizzly bears, wolverine, cougar, uh, bison. And I think that's it. Lynx. Oh, Lynx wasn't uh, on our list, but it was definitely something, you know, we were interested if we had enough of them. Um, gotcha. We're yeah. seeing the number of those, but those essentially were, uh, were what we were looking at. Um, so from the first year's results, uh, we did, I went through all the data and essentially looked at how many cameras caught images of those 10 species. So uh, bison, black bears, cougar, elk, grizzly bear, um, and then the moose, white-tailed deer, wolf, wolverine, and caribou. So I went through how many cameras uh, caught pictures of them and then how many pictures were taken. And of course, the number of pictures that are taken doesn't mean that it's that many individual animals, right? Like one animal yeah. loves the camera, they get, you know, <laughs> 25 pictures as they're strolling past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that type of thing. But uh, we did, you know, get quite a few. Um, we had a few zeros um, for some of the species. So the bison, cougar and elk were all zero cameras, zero photos. Hmm. Um the black bear, we had 911 photos taken on 50 cameras. Um, for grizzly bear, just one camera, and we had 64 pictures. So there was probably four or five different bears, and we got 64 pictures out of that. Um, 43 of the cameras took 2,092 pictures of moose. So that was quite cool across, uh, across the study area. We had 14 cameras and 1,203 pictures of white-tailed deer, only six cameras and 21 pictures for the wolves. And then the wolverine had 75 photos across eight cameras. And then for the woodland caribou, there was 580 photos across 16 cameras. So that was for the first year. Um, and essentially, ABMI took that information and developed um, the densities and it, we found that in the southern um, portion of the ranges that there were higher densities of moose, white-tailed deer and black bear and that was in both of the caribou ranges we had the same trend. In that southern grid we had more of those three species. Moose, white-tailed white deer, deer and black, and black bear. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they found that that was comparable to their Northeast study. So that was similar results that they found over there. Uh, so that was also interesting too, because again, we're comparing the apples to apples. Um, same protocol, same study setup, and we, we essentially found uh, the same thing at the, at the lower uh, latitude there. Also, three species that adapt reasonably well to human disturbances, industrial yeah. disturbances in forested environments, Absolutely. Uh, if not actually benefit from them. Yes. Um, 
seismic lines, creating foraging areas for black bears, mm -hmm. revegetating grass eating roads um, to the willows and alders and stuff growing back on old cut lines yeah. for moose. And, you know, white tailed deer live everywhere. They'd live in your house yeah. if you left the door open. Like they're just, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, that, that intuitively, I guess that makes sense. If you're mm -hmm. talking about a landscape that's got a reasonable industrial footprint on it already. So yeah huh yeah so then some of the um other questions that have uh, that have come out of this are really like three of the big questions that came out of the first year results um is the biggest one being whether caribou use the burned habitat because we found that two out of the six cameras uh that had uh the most burned habitat also had the highest density of woodland caribou, which is quite contradictory to body of knowledge, you know, the, yeah. the, the norm, I guess. Every study that we see is the, the, the burnt habitat's no good for caribou, but we did find uh, the opposite. Um, the big disclaimer here being that this is only one year of data, so we would need more, you know, if we get year two's data and say it shows the same, you know, it kind of builds uh, a bit more credibility to that. So the, the, the camera trap data is just kind of showing an animal was at a point on the landscape, mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually tell you sort of like what it was doing or why it was there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. you can only get so much out of the images, right? Like, I mean, a lot of the ones with caribou, they weren't by themselves. I can only really think there were some of the bigger bulls were alone, um, but there were the younger ones were with um, females. We only captured one female that had a collar. I think that was in the Chinchaga range. Uh, didn't see any calves that I can remember, but yeah. It was, yeah, because the, the reason, you know, I just, I sort of brought that up is because, yes, normally, from what I understand, forest fires are not good for caribou. They're the mm -hmm. one ungulate that kind of doesn't, doesn't do, do well, well in, in, yeah. in burnt, recently burned areas. But in this case, you know, what the camera data is showing is they were there, which was mm -hmm. a surprise. But it doesn't say, well, were they there feeding? Was it just a, a migratory route and they're going to yeah. go through there regardless? Like mm -hmm. they've just been doing it for hundreds of years and they're just going to a better place, um, you know, so to speak. That Those are questions that mm -hmm. it doesn't really answer. It just says there were some caribou. At yeah, it is, it is true, although, you know, the scientific evidence shows primarily that they just avoid it. So like, don't even use it at all. So the fact that they're there, I don't know, do, is, is that counter uh, regardless yeah. of whether they were just passing yeah. through? Yeah. So. And, and that's the difference between the collar data. So when the mm -hmm. animal's got a collar on the, the satellites are tracking its movement, they can literally see where it went, how long it stayed there. Or in the case of like a forest fire, you could actually literally see like, well, they actually just made this big, huge loop and didn't even bother walking through the middle of it. They, they completely exactly. avoided it. Or, you know, they spent five days over in this habitat and mm -hmm. they spent like two hours in this habitat or something like yeah. that. Right. So it's um, true. 
And and up in the Caribou Mountains, like some of those fires have, were very severe. Uh, they were mm. quite some time ago. So in the in the eighties and mid nineties, they had quite uh, severe fires up there. And uh, you know, a lot of that is still evident on the landscape. You know, even now. So it it was an interesting finding. Um, but certainly, you know, it's not a silver bullet for anybody that thinks that it changes the narrative. But it certainly raises an interesting question. Um, so I guess we'll see, you know, if that trend continues into the second and third year of data collection. Right. So that, that's the important thing, right? Is like, it's like, you've got a data set, but it's like, you got to run it out to, mm-hmm. to the end and and then, and then make your conclusions after you exactly. see the whole thing. Cause I, I can see right now, uh, that some people are thinking, so you're saying what you're seeing so the difference between seeing most frequently on the camera traps moose white-tailed deer and black bears Mm -hmm. did that also translate into those were the species with the highest densities yes okay yeah so so what i'm kind of thinking so that it's good to confirm that because it Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily mean that but but it was so people are saying so more black bears than wolves in caribou mm-hmm. habitat so i can see a couple of sides going so why are you doing wolf control in the caribou recovery exactly. zone and why are you not focusing on black bears yeah and that so, leads into the second question that came oh, okay. up in okay. this study you're, you're too there. yeah so this is um whether predator management is affecting wolf oh. density within the caribou ranges so we had five cameras in caribou mountains that observed wolves and there was only one in um in chinchaga one camera that picked up uh, wolves so you know there there could be a suggestion that the efforts by the trappers and the government of alberta because the chinchaga range does have active uh, predator management i believe you talked about that with bill didn't you on that um, episode. So they are actively reducing uh, wolf uh, densities and populations within Chinchaga. So, you know, is that indeed working? Um, and that's why we're seeing less of them now, you know, but it's hard to really confirm that because again, disclaimer, more data is required to uh, confirm that trend because we don't we, it's difficult to know what the wolf numbers were prior to the reduction right. uh, efforts. Yep. So, and we don't know that. I mean, if the data sets out there, great, but I'm sure, you know, IBMI would have had their hands on that for a comparable. So it's tough to say. Um, and the government did put in uh, quite substantial funding to the trappers in the last couple of years to do um, wolf reduction in Chinchaga. So, you know, it's my understanding that uh, that they are actively doing that and pulling quite a few out of there every year. So, or the last couple of years, anyway. But you're still, the committee still kind of waiting for the conclusion of mm-hmm. the final years of monitoring Ex- to really exactly. see what, to 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 answer that question. So yeah, so to see if that the, trend continues. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then and then the last question that comes out of it again, you know, between uh, the caribou and and other ungulates is um, if the caribou and other ungulate densities are increasing in wolf reduction areas. Right. So if we're seeing 
you know, in the southern portions that there are higher levels of whitetail and moose, albeit black bear too. Um, but is that in response to predator management? I know there was that study in BC where they had, uh, you know, different measures going on in different areas and they were getting quite interesting results. Um, so that this question kind of uh, parallels with that. So again, you know, let's see what the next two years bring. And if they continue to do predator management in the Chinchaga and they're not doing it in Caribou Mountains, what difference uh, will we see in the uh, densities over time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, and we had Dr. Rob Soroya way yeah. back, I think, on episode two, like three yeah. years ago, um, right around when he, he published a big... Um, paper him and his co-authors where they were looking at management of all the different management regimes across all the caribou recovery areas in Mm -hmm. in bc so there was there was wolf management there was moose density reduction there was maternal penning there was habitat restoration like all all of those things that they 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 were looking at so um yeah Yeah. kind of as i recall kind of the big finding from that was is when all the levers are pulled. Caribou are showing the exactly. the, the, the best response. Like so a combination, it was like a, a little bit yeah. of everything, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, this the news always just kind of picks up on the one lever, which is the wolf control and the controversy that that has um, yeah. in in dividing people's opinions as as opposed to looking at it as one part of a suite of actions, mm-hmm. and is it helping or not? So, yeah. Very very interesting work up there so do you miss being part of this now well it's you know i did my last meeting with them in january and uh you know i was involved all over christmas kind of putting together um summaries from this project and social media posts and doing the project web page for this and sifting through all the data and sending all these cool photos to my family going look what i'm working on you know and they're like <laughs> not for long <laughs> and i'm like yeah that's true but um you know it was uh, voluntary of me to to walk away from uh, from the committee i mean i essentially had two full-time jobs, right? So my my job at the town is totally separate to this committee. So mm. I, I run a planning department and, uh, you know, do all that kind of um, stuff on, you know, in one area of my life. And then, the, and then the other portion was managing this committee and doing all the collaboration work. Uh, and, you know, I felt over time that it, it was really difficult to be effective at both, um, you know, the work with the committee certainly uh, morphed more into like a project management role um, rather than, you know, how active it was at the start when we were kind of going out and, you know, trying to get people involved in this project and, and get the buy-in from the communities, municipalities and industry and the and the governments too. Um, so it definitely morphed away from that. And then with COVID, there was no opportunities really to travel anywhere to do presentations or or anything like that um we did come to bc once it was williams lake uh in early Mm. 2019 there was a local government conference there and uh, we shared because this project was just kicking off then so we were going into that year we were deploying devices um so we were presenting to the 
the municipalities there of how you can get meaningfully involved in species at risk recovery planning and you know they were all quite inspired I think and you know we kind of stayed connected with them and I enjoyed the drive you know I went through Chetwind and and all those places which is pretty cool Um, that's awesome yeah so it's been fun it really has and you know the biggest thing about this is you find if uh you know, typically when industry uh, does research, I mean, they spend a lot of money, right? Like sometimes in the millions and, and a lot of the information's not really publicly available. It's like proprietary and, and that type of thing. So for us, you know, it was public money that went into this project and uh, ABMI is obviously not for profit. The, their goal is to, you know, improve public knowledge and, and all that. So, all of the uh, data for this project is available through WildTracks. So that's with um, ABMI. So you yeah. can go on to there, you know, go we'll, on to we'll put the, a link in the show notes. Yeah, I can send you all those for the uh, for the NWSR project and see everything. Alternatively, if you go on to uh, NWSR's website as well, there's, um, you know, a couple of big project pages on this. And right at the bottom, I've added some links and it sends you to a Google Drive um like SharePoint thing, and you can download all the images per uh, grid for oh, okay. each of the 10 focal we'll, we'll species. Put the, so, we'll put the NWSR website on yeah. in the show notes as well. So, you know, I, I think I think these types of things, it, it's great to get involved, do your part, you know, mm-hmm. and then sometimes, and then hand it off. Because I think in, especially in wildlife stuff, people tend to get pulled into something and and they're there till they they burn out and then and then it, it, it suffers so yeah. um so i think it is good to get in do your part and then you know and then allow new minds and mm-hmm. you know fresh energy and stuff to carry on so that's kind of how i felt you know like because in the last two years i did two huge projects for them so the other one was again with abmi as well and collaborating with the northern forestry center as well so it was like a wildfire risk assessment it was a state of the environment report for the five municipalities and a big uh, socioeconomic assessment of all the communities as well and that was 18 months of you know hell (laughs) (laughs) well it's then it is it is time to move on yeah it is it is um this was this was really informative Haley. thank you so much for coming on and sharing this i think um your experience and and just kind of seeing this from a municipality's perspective mm-hmm. and and uh it, it was cool it was really cool learning about what you were doing and i think uh it resonates with people the on the on the uh, the boots on the ground kind of thing yeah. like getting involved in science i think that was that Absolutely. was super cool really Absolutely. appreciate you coming on no are you welcome this was great i'm glad that we uh that we did this and i'm glad absolutely that I had opportunity yeah, absolutely. to share this because you know it's it's been a huge undertaking but i've really uh really enjoyed it and i i don't regret you know a single day of of working up north it's uh, it's a lot of fun it is oh good good cool well thanks curtis thank you Take right on away. the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Big supporters of us, big supporters of 
Ducks Unlimited Canada. Spring turkey season and bear season are right around the corner. So maybe uh, maybe it's time to get some new tires or a light bar. Or I don't know, something something to help get you into your turkey hunting spots because we like to get into our turkey hunting spots quickly and <laughs> smoothly. So, yeah. Thanks to the folks at Alpine Toyota for continuing to support what we do here at the Hunter Conservationist. Yes, thank you, Alpine, and thank you, Haley. Appreciate it. And we got to find out about the handy tree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I I hope I hope people go. Oh, I know what he's talking about, as opposed to going, "What are you crazy?" Me too. Uh, <laughs> e- e- either way, let us know what you uh, find I out. I will. I will. All right, everybody. We will see you in the next episode. Bye.